I'm Zach. I'm a musician, a former worship leader. I helped destroy a megachurch, and I'm not really sure what I believe anymore. I'm Dave. I'm a film and theology nerd, a movie buff, an occasional preacher, and I'm still All right, hold on. I get it. 30 seconds. Sorry, just making a note for myself. I'll take that out in post. Um. <laughs> you can't censor me. Veterans of Culture Wars is a podcast where we talk about the beliefs, history, culture, and personal stories from evangelical Christianity. We welcome you to the podcast, whether you are a believer or not. Zach, we have a good show today. Um, We are going to be talking with an author, a blogger, a math teacher, and a mom. And uh, we're going to cover some topics. Four people? We're talking to four people today, Dave? All in one. All That's going to really yes. stress the bandwidth of, of <laughs> my Zoom here. I don't know how we're going to accomplish that. How is it possible to talk to all four of those people for one episode, Dave? Explain this you now. Know, with, our, with our extremely high-tech equipment here at the BCW Hall, I think we can pull it off. So okay. we'll, we'll see how it goes. We're going to cover uh, some topics. We're going to talk about um, suffering and pain and grief and how to walk through that. Uh, We're going to talk about an article that actually was just published today, the date that we're recording this, June 16th, about uh, kind of Christian manhood and womanhood. Uh, We wanted to bring that up as we just read that today, fresh off the presses. But uh, let's go ahead and introduce our guest. She, as I mentioned, is an author. She wrote the book uh, Companions in Suffering, Comfort for Times of Loss and Loneliness. And she has a forthcoming book next January called I Forgive You, Finding Peace and Moving Forward When Life Really Hurts. Welcome to our show, Wendy Alsa. Thank you, guys. I'm very excited to be here. I'm impressed that you know about the article that came out today. You do your research. Yeah. Well, you know, I I jumped into Facebook Messenger and Zach had sent it to me and he's like, hey, read this, like, you know, the the day that we're talking to you. So it was uh, it was ordained to be, I guess, as they say. That's that right. We would talk about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I saw uh, you tweet about it, but it, it wasn't from like a normal place where you publish things, as I as I recall it. Like it didn't the, the preview window didn't say your name or anything like that. But I clicked anyway and oh, OK, something she actually wrote today. How about that? Yeah. Modern Reformation, they had seen a Twitter thread I did on this idea of um, the farmer versus the warrior as the Christic manhood um, and invited me. So there's some folks who are interested in this discussion, I think. Yeah. Well, uh, you mentioned uh, in, in the article, uh, Dr. Kristen DeMay and Jesus and John Wayne. And of course that book's been out, for, I think for about a year now, and has especially been blowing up. I think it made the New York Times bestseller list actually maybe mm-hmm. today or last week or whatever. So wow. a lot of people talking about uh, that topic for sure. Uh, but to start us out here. We, we had uh, her on the show a few months ago, if, if you didn't know. Uh, oh, lo- good. Lo- lovely woman. It was really, really great talking to her. Yes, she is. Yeah, she's fantastic. Um, 
Now, uh, to start us off here, I know you used to live in the Seattle area with uh, Zach and I live in the greater Seattle area. And because of life circumstances, you moved uh, back to South Carolina. And uh, I read this in, in your book, uh, Companions in Suffering. You moved back to your family farm. And that really struck me personally because I'm a person that I'm so attached to spaces. And I have mm -hmm. this thing in my mind that if I could go back to my childhood house, which mm -hmm. I literally lived for the same house the first 18 years of my life, like high school, when I left, I was done. But, you know, and I, I wonder what it would be like to walk in that house just with all the memories and, and everything that space meant to me. What was that like for you uh, from Seattle and going back to this space that has been in your family and, and maybe reliving some of those memories, making new ones? Uh, how's that been going for you? Well, you know, it was interesting for me because um, it was my grandmother's house, the house my mom was raised in, and my dad farmed this farm most of my life. However, we lived in town, and uh, we lived about 10, 12 minutes away, and daddy would come over here every day, but I didn't. So I would come over on occasion, and for me, because I had that distance from it, and I knew about it in terms of our family history, but I didn't have the interpersonal relationship with it from day to day, it was a lot about rediscovering a history beyond, behind the history of my family, of my immediate upbringing, I guess. How did, it wasn't, it wasn't just about my childhood, but about my parents' childhood and learning their history, which changed my understanding of my history and that's a little different you know but it's had a profound effect on me my my grandpa had 40 acres of farmland in redmond uh oh. when i was growing up so i still think of redmond as farm country i still think of going out to thino's dairy for ice cream and and just endless fields that we we'd see as as we were driving out to his his land um he it's probably uh, hard is it hard for you because it's all grown and different now yeah like i don't recognize the mm -hmm. the area really at all um and i'm i'm somebody that's not very good about change <laughs> mm -hmm. um i don't i don't handle life moving forward um on its own without my input <laughs> very mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. um so I, I, I don't know the last time that I was in the vicinity of of that farmhouse um, because I just whenever I'm in Redmond, I don't think to go there anymore. It's just there's there's nothing nothing there for me in that regard. Right. Those, those memories are just gone. Um, yeah. My dad lost his family farm. So the one I'm living on now was the one my mom was raised in. And my dad lost his maybe in his early twenties uh, for foreclosure, um, mm -hmm. and and they uh, they let whoever bought it let it grow over, and it's right we, we pass it on our way to the dump. It's right next to the dump, and I really wanted Daddy to show it to me after I moved back, and he took me, and it was so it was so different than driving up to this place and. I haven't been able to bring myself to go back and it was sad to watch him experience it as much as it had changed. And yeah, that's hard. Now I feel like I've heard you speak years and years ago and hearing you now, I'm, I'm wondering if moving back home, if 
if the uh, it's South Carolina. Right. South, mm-hmm. I want it, it, is the South Carolina coming out in your voice a little feel, bit more I now than it, than it was. Yeah. You think you, you've been <laughs> yeah. adjusting as an adult, your, your natural speaking voice. Wow. Yeah. That's really interesting. Or do you think you I had tried. to did bury it for us Seattleites? I tried very hard when I was teaching at North Seattle community college. I tried so hard my first year not to say y'all. And oh my goodness, I tried so hard. And then I had a problem because my phone number in Seattle was 206 999. For the life of me, I could not say nine. I couldn't say, I still can't. I can't say nine, nine. <laughs> Unfortunately, that reminds me of uh, Herman Cain, who I think tragically <laughs> passed away. Do you remember his 999 plan? <laughs> oh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, we don't have to. <laughs> tragically passed away so we won't go there um but wendy what's um what's your story with uh, evangelicalism and faith you're uh, like me you're an evangelical christian you um are published by intervarsity press with your companions in in suffering and i'm assuming your forthcoming book as well uh my forthcoming book is with the good book company oh cool okay yeah very cool. But what's uh, what's your journey with with faith uh, generally as much as you want to share and um you know, how do you, how do you think about your Christianity right now in our times? Yeah, I came to Christ um, at a pretty young age. My parents were saved in adulthood. They became, uh, they grew up in the church, but they didn't really have an experience with Christ until adulthood. And so um, in their lives, their change was real and they were faithful to take us to church. They had a lot of their own struggles. They married very young. They had a lot of their own struggles and um, I had a lot of internal wrestling with life in general that caused me to my own sincere faith um, in youth. And so then I also had a lot of experience in Jesus and John Wayne type churches. And before I got to Mars Hill, I had been around the block a couple times. And so my Mars Hill experience was very tragic and sad, but it didn't destroy my faith. Um, I've always felt, uh, I've hated it for folks that came to the faith at Mars Hill, like their first experience of church, their first pastor. Right. Um, and they had no foundation before that. But thankfully I had been around the block enough to know um, pride and that faith can can persevere through someone's pride. It wasn't the first time I'd had those kind of circumstances. So I persevered through that, but it really informed a lot of how I thought post-Mars Hill, which is I just have a real strong passion for it. Sometimes I, I point out what's wrong. But what I really want to do, I, I don't mind letting other people point out what's wrong. I want to point people to what's right. Like, yeah, you're right. That wasn't how it's supposed to be. But let's find what it was supposed to be. And I've had really great experiences with elders and pastors. The vast majority of elders and pastors in my life have been humble men who loved me sincerely and sincerely wanted the good for my life and to shepherd me. Rarely have they been flamboyant, you know, rarely have they been popular, but I had this one pastor who was really flamboyant and popular 
and he really had a lot of sin pride problems. But for the vast majority of my life, I've had good shepherds and my burden so much has to be, has been to um, be a bridge so that folks that have only had this Jesus and John Wayne type experience will know that there is something else out there. So another book, you didn't talk about it, but one that I've been really passionate about is, is the Bible good for women? Mm. And, um, and because coming out of Mars Hill, so burdened for how scripture was misused against women to support Mark's misogyny, his, his mom issues, you know, Mark has just deep rooted issues with women. That's interesting. I don't, I, I don't recall hearing him ever talk about his mother. I, re- I recall him talking about general, like, extended family. There's messiness, and his folks moved to get away from something, wh- whatever may have been occurring. Um, but he talked a lot about, you know, my dad was a union drywaller. He, he hung drywall for 30 years till he literally broke his back. But I don't recall him talking about his mom or her, her impact in his life, like, ever. He let a little bit out of it out in, in real marriage, mm. um, but he talks about it generally, where his family, that's what he says, you know, his family came from, I don't know, South Dakota, North Dakota, and they were drunk, wife-beating, you know, codependent. You know, you can connect some dots there, and I'll leave it for others to connect the dots. I don't want to, I think Mark part. has a problem. With. with women really <laughs> and it, it's rooted somewhere i don't mean I, to be sarcastic but yeah that's a really interesting thing i'd never pondered his relationship with his mother at all I or never, and his father i think yeah. that a lot of the stories he told us anonymously like walking up he walked up you know and saw some man beating up a kid and stood and broke up the fight between the dad and the kid well i think a lot of these are more serious stories than what you know if mark's family was the drunk folks with men beating their wives kind of I, think, I think he has a a, a very troubled background yeah and yeah. that's for some therapist i think or i mean i maybe need, i think he needs pastoral help yeah well pastoral help and probably therapy and <laughs> yeah, yeah th- this article that you published today on um in modern reformation that we um, hinted at it, it, you talk about Mars Hill and you talk about how women had retreats and men have advances. Right. And we brought that, brought that up on the show before, but then you went through and you know, you're talking about the character of Jesus and, and let's just talk about that. The character of Jesus and kind of even passages in the Bible. I mean, there's, there's some warrior stuff in the Bible, but you're also talking about how men and women, at least in the Genesis account are, supposed to be gardeners and taking care of the earth and they're naming animals, which evokes some kind of, you know, close connection to what's going on in the world and in creation. And you want to talk a little bit about this, uh, this article that you published today? Absolutely. Cause I, I need my own detox from what is wrong with the world. And I, I too need to focus on, on what God has called us toward, but that's why I love that scene in um, the Lord of the Rings where Galadriel uh, gives Sam the gift. I talked about it in the article, and he, she gives all of them these beautiful gifts of, of uh, 
armor and daggers, and he's disappointed because he got the seed. But what he she gave him was more important because what she gave him was for life after the war. The war was not the end point. Um, we're not a standing army. God called us to cultivate. And this is the language of scripture from Genesis 1 and 2 to the new heaven and new earth. You know, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. They that sow in tears will reap in joy. We were created to tend the ground, to build, to plant, to steward. Um, and these metaphors uh, were led toward harvest. The farming metaphors uh, go through the whole of scripture and are the goal. Any warrior, you know, the armor of God is to withstand Satan so that we can guard the fields and tend the fields. But there's no value to the warrior imagery if it is not to steward the resources that we're tending and growing and planting and harvesting. And there's so many, so many interesting ways to to go through that. Uh, the 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 warrior versus farmer analogies. I mean, thinking of the effect on the family of these. You know, somebody who's focused on farming, their wife, their children. They they generally are working together and have tasks for the family farm together to make mm-hmm. things work and build their life and and help each other out. And you think of a warrior, you know, going off doing their fighting leaving their wife to handle the kids as best they can and then coming home when they're done killing people, bringing with them all the baggage of all of that, uh, right. PTSD or whatever. Uh, and, and not really, I mean, not to denigrate the military here, I'm not saying, but just think, thinking about uh, the family dynamic of, of a family centered around a warrior um Mm -hmm. also you know there's not a lot of collateral damage in farming um i mean you could talk about you know historically in america the farming industry being propped up by slave labor and all that but that's getting too far uh afield no no pun intended um (laughs) now but even you know even the discussion of slavery um and i think about it on our farm we didn't our farm wasn't uh came about after slavery but we had um folks that lived on our farmland that did not benefit the same way from the farmland that those who owned the land did and you can you can really trace that to the fall um uh misuse of the land and the misuse of the people god created to steward the land and uh forcing someone to steward something where you did not actually give them um part of the harvest and how that's actually all that's wrong with the world. That's all that's wrong with farming, not not what God intended it to be. So I, I think you can have even the negative discussions in terms of the fall, the weeds. You know, the farm is a, a, a metaphor for all that's right and all that's wrong. Sure. You know, I mean, our battle with weeds. You, know, yeah, you can write what? a whole book on just weeds. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, what what's the end goal with all the farming you're doing? You know, like what allowed for slavery to occur was when ultimately farming was the system by which people could profit the most. And so ultimately the farm is the vehicle for accumulating vast amounts of wealth by using unpaid labor and treating people as 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 uh possessions. Um then that's 
naturally where where you're going to get to when that when that's legal but when when the goal of the farming is to to do your job well and tend after the land have it last generation after generation not destroying the crops with you know short term uh ideas with what you're planting and how you're taking care of the soil um having something to to have your children you know help help cultivate and then take over as they grow up and are able to do that uh there's is a much it's just much more positive way of 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 looking at that i guess um so david noted at the beginning of your article you talked about the the meds advance versus retreat thing and i i went to one of the men's advances um what did i, I describe it accurately yeah and um i think i only went to one um but i, I was never a you know an ultimate fighting guy or whatever but but you mm -hmm. know you mentioning that makes sense um conversations about sex and ufc fights is is what the weekend would entail is is how you talked about it and uh said perhaps the men did spend some quiet time in prayer and bible study but if they did no one talked about that aspect of the meds advance when they got home and yeah my i mean my clearest memories actually i think i went to two because i think i went to one and, and liked it and then invited my dad to come to a second one right so i went to two so my I don't mean to just you know cast negatively upon you uh, well I was young. <laughs> so the clearest memories I have of those events um, revolve around sex. So yeah. that, you know, single men and married men would be shuffled off into different uh, rooms so that the married men could, you know, have dirty talk in the context of marriage. And then the single guys would, they, you know, be saved from the, the horrors of getting horny with, the talk of sex things. Oh, uh, were you with, married at this point? Like which, which group? Were no, you in? I, I was, I was single at the time. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, you, you didn't want us getting all worked up with no proper outlet. Cause at that advance, Mark let us know that uh, masturbation is a gay act because there's no woman there with you. Um, and then I also remember <laughs> talking in the cat, like one of the main worship leaders was in my cabin. I was, you know, friends with him. And I remember him uh, boasting for quite a while uh, about, uh, how, you know, his wife's willingness to to put out pretty frequently, and Good grief, and that you know, letting us know, you know, you could have this too, you know, you you got you got you guys got to find yourselves a wife like. I I have been blessed Gosh. with a really good wife. I basically get to have sex as much as I want. Um, I I don't recall Proverbs thirty one getting mentioned <laughs> a, sing sex. a single time you know that's always like my wife can't hear that anymore proverbs 31 it's just like i don't i don't want to hear that anymore mm -hmm. but so it's like women women were always told about proverbs 31 men you never really told us look for a proverbs 31 woman <laughs> it's well i'll tell you they talked a lot about sex to the women too oh yeah there's a lot of pressure on and i i, I resented a lot the pressure i felt to be you know, on call whenever the guy wants or whenever. Yeah. And yeah. I or remember to, or to engage in those conversations as you were tasked with leading the women. There. So I, I, I was just kind of wondering, because essentially when Mark was only with men, he felt free to be 
more to the point and crasser and cruder and all that. And not, not to say um, you should have known better and shouldn't have supported that. But I'm just wondering if, if at the time, if you were privy to the sorts of, you know, next level misogyny that he was willing to spout at events like that. Um, and did, did you feel left out by the male centric focus there or was your role in leading women something that you found fulfilling enough uh, to, to want to keep doing it for a while? Yeah, You know, here, this is going to be my um, jaded view of how I was used at Morris Hill, but I think I was the token female deaconess, women's, you know, deacon of theology and training. Um, And I was left alone a lot. And I always had good guys that were my supervising elders. Um, Bill Clem was Gary Love, uh, not Gary Love, Gary um, Shavy, good guys that were my personal supervising elder and Mark kind of left me alone um, because he didn't think I was going to teach women not to submit to their husbands, I guess is the bottom line. I was pretty conservative, but because I was left alone because I, and I was propped up, you know, I was propped up because it got Mark some relief, I think. And that—that's uh, the negative, jaded view of myself. But regardless, I feel like what we did in women's ministry when I was there was so good because we would just do scripture. All right, so women's retreat. Let's go. We would go up to Bellingham and um, oh, I forget what that place is called, but it was lovely. Go up to Bellingham and um, let's do Ephesians. All right, so we're gonna have a weekend and we just go through Ephesians, you know, or let's just let's talk about this book of the Bible or first Peter, let's talk about language or something. And there would be nary a sex workshop when I led women's retreats because I just was burdened for us to know theology. I wanted, that was really my burden for women to know God and for it to matter in their daily lives. And Mark didn't interfere with that. I think, and maybe, and maybe it was noble. I mean, maybe, maybe there wasn't negative uh, motivations uh, there. But he, I will have to say, he let me do what I was burdened to do. And I think the women were stronger for it. Even as at the same time, I'm feeling pressure for what I'm supposed to be as a wife. But in terms of the ministry and the teaching he allowed me to do, he didn't interfere with it. Did Did they ever like use your name like in, in a press release or something responding to criticism formally? Uh, as sort, you were saying, you felt sort of like used as a shield to some extent against uh, criticism against him. Did, did I don't ever... remember it being that way. Yeah. No, hmm. um, no, not. But oh yeah, they would. I think I did have some interviews. Um, I was uh, for the Young Restless and Reformed book that Colin Hansen put out. Oh, I remember I gave an impassioned defense of Mark in that book. I was oh. So badly abused and misquoted and misunderstood. But um, beyond that, I don't remember too much. I was going through the Wayback Machine, look, looking at the archive of the old Mars Hill.fm 
site mm-hmm. recently, you know, with the, the Midrash forums and all that and going, it had stuff going back to about 2000. And I remember some of the earliest pages I was seeing your, you know, here's an article by Wendy uh, on, on something, you know, something for the ladies to read or whatever. I, I, think, I don't think they at the time said it so uh, condescendingly, but, um, but you were, you know, you were the woman writing stuff uh, for a female audience uh, at the church really early in, yeah. in the church's life. Uh, when, when did you start going there? And because I was two thousand two. Oh, you were two thousand two. Okay. Uh huh. And um, oh, and I had a question. You said earlier that your 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 parents uh, were converted as adults. Were they already parents? Yeah. And and uh, so, like, how old were you? And do do you have older siblings? I have older siblings, and I'm not sure how old I was. Um, but I think you know, maybe five or six. Okay. Yeah. So you you had some experience of being being parented uh, outside of that belief system before they brought it in. Yeah, they still went to church, but because uh, everybody in the South goes to church, sure. Um, whether you believe in Jesus or not, <laughs> I think that they went to church that was more of a works, try to be righteous yourself, and then um, they experienced the gospel where Jesus died for you, and you repent, believe. And then they switched to an independent Baptist church and became much more conservative in their beliefs. But I do think that the change was real. I think the change was real in them. That's great. At the end of this article, um, which I I thought this was just beautiful, kind of circling back around to this modern Reformation piece, um, you quote, uh, I think this is a quote, onward Christian farmer rebuilding after war, the fields are strewn with shrapnel but call to us for more. Their depths hold precious nutrients. Our people deeply need. We call out now the metal that we may plant the seed. And this beautiful, I mean, that a farmer is not just planting a garden, but sometimes transforming something, the destruction from war, the metal, the the stuff that was choking out, you know, potential beauty, flowers, bushes, or crops, whatever is going to pop up. And like our, our job as a person, as, as a Christian, or for the non-Christians to listen to this podcast, um, you know, doing positive things in the world, trying to redeem the world and, and move towards something better or more righteous in a, a Christian type word. I love that. Is that. Is that a quote or where did you find that? I wrote it. You wrote it. Okay. So it's not a quote. <laughs> it is a, it's not a quote from something else, a direct quote from from Wendy. Yeah. yeah that's really beautiful. Thanks. It wasn't uh, Martin Luther's first draft. <laughs> <laughs> so Wendy also it's first draft. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, Martin Martin might be more warlike. Uh, <laughs> might be. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> he's singing a barroom song. Oh. There you go. <laughs> Mighty fortresses are gone. <laughs> um, oh, right. Yeah, that's okay. Did he write uh, Onward Christian Soldiers? I was confusing no, uh, he wrote a mighty, a mighty fortress. fortress is our God. Didn't he write it to a bar room? Yeah, yeah it was yeah. a bar tune. Yep. Bar tune. Mighty fortress is our God. There you go. Okay. But that is based on a psalm, I think, you know, more finding refuge in God. Yeah, um, Christian soldiers. Is that Fanny Crosby? No, it, it's, uh, it was a British song, and they wrote it for school children to cross the bridge on their way to Christian school. And it just took off. 
I did a little research on it. Um, I don't know who wrote it. transition to uh, your book, Companions in Suffering, which I I think is just such a great book. I I have read most of it, not all of it. I I do want to finish it. But um, what what strikes me is it's it's very theological, not in an academic way. It's in a way that anybody can understand. But you have such deep thoughts about, about God and the Bible in this book, but you're also talking about the reality of just really going through intense suffering, uh, physical, emotional, even spiritual suffering. And I think it's very different from other, you know, Christian books that I've read that I think have, are, are well-intentioned, but you often find are just, you know, pulling Bible verses out of, out of context or not really dealing with, you know, what it's like to really go through something that is just so horrifically painful. Um, that that you're wrestling with um, God's love and God's care and you being God's God's child. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, you, you write a lot of stuff, honestly, about your life circumstance in this book, but um, how did the book first become like an idea, like I want to do this? Because I imagine not everybody just comes up with, oh, I want to write about what it's like to suffer and and be a Christian, you know? So when did the idea to first kind of jot down some of your thoughts and experiences in a book form come up, how that all come about? Well, it started almost as a stream of consciousness on my blog, just as I was going through, you know, what for me, I had a divorce. I didn't want funneled me kind of down to this life on the farm. I didn't want to move to the farm. Didn't want to leave my life in Seattle Um, but really forced by circumstances. And then about a year after I got here was diagnosed with breast cancer um, and ended up being diagnosed with, um, they found a large tumor in my abdomen and then um, cancer cells in my uterus. And so it ended up being a pretty convoluted string of things, you know, of, being kicked when you're down and then kicked after you'd been kicked when you're down and then kicked after you've been kicked when you're kicked when you're down. And for me, it it was just, what was I doing to survive? How, how was the Lord meeting me and holding my, my nose up above water so I could breathe when I felt like I was drowning and then putting it into words because that's often how I process it for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish that I learned things for myself and then taught them to other people. But nine times out of 10, I am writing about what I'm learning as I'm learning it. And in particular, for me, I felt that I needed to go through the book of Job because in theory, on paper, that's the book mm-hmm. you need to go to. But it was really hard to bring myself to it because I know the story of Job. I know enough about the Bible. I know exactly how Job works out. 
And so what I ended up doing was walking around my farm pretty stunned, like just kind of in shock, especially as diagnosis would come on, like about the time you get healed from the first surgery and they're doing the follow-up CAT scan, you know, just to make sure. And then they come up with this next thing. I'm like, what the heck? And, um, but I would, I would listen to the book of Job. And not very quickly, I would have to repeat chapters because I couldn't process them because I was too foggy mentally. And then I would fast forward through the friends because I don't like them. Um, but Job's words, just listening to his lament over and over again, I just thought, oh, Lord, thank you so much that someone's saying what I feel because I feel like I'm about to lose my faith. And if I can't verbalize it to God, because that's the, that's the last place I have, you know, if I cannot tell God how I feel in these moments as I'm walking around this loop of my farmhouse in shock, unable to take calls, like I have, I have my pastor from Seattle called me. He's like, wow, this is really shaking my faith. I'm like, well, that's not really helpful. Okay. I'm sorry. Your faith is shaking good. But you know, when it's, and I had multiple friends tell me that this, every time I would get the next diagnosis, they were struggling too. And so I, it's not like I had a lot of people I could go to in the moment for encouragement. And God was the last place I could go to. But the words I needed to say to God, I didn't feel like a good Christian should say. As a Christian, do you, do you think that evangelicals have a good grasp of the language to articulate the ideas no. of suffering? Because I feel like we, we, we need to have the words. We need to to know what to call things. And I think there's a, there's something of a correlation in, in, in how it can feel um, between suffering and persecution and Christians like evangelicals like to focus on persecution and embrace that as like, Oh yeah. You know, Satan's going to attack us if we're doing what God wants, but suffering, it can be so often dismissed uh, as, you know, either, you know, this is, you know, demons messing with you or, well, uh, you know, it's not a real verse to my knowledge, but you know, God will never give you more than you can handle. And sometimes it's more than you can handle. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I think Job is such a gift to us. And that's why I try to focus on Job a little bit. I mean, it's not the only thing I focus on in the book, but spent a couple chapters on Job because Job says raw things to God, God mm -hmm. preserved. And you know, the really interesting thing about the book of Job is it like, it's like the earliest book put on paper. Mm. Um, so like the first scripture put on paper was this man who was righteous, struggling with God for all that he had allowed in Job's life, which I just think is such a sweet gift of grace from God yeah. to his children. Yeah, Job, in the book, it says he was blameless. Uh, right. Because they're dispelling of the notion that um, there's, a, there's a really good book uh, written by a non-believer called God's Problem. The title's a little 
contrarian, I guess is, is a good word, but um, it's by Bart Ehrman and he's the chair mm -hmm. of religious uh, studies. And he's, he's an interesting character. I, some of the stuff he's written is kind of, it, it seems really, I don't know, nitpicky or, you know, there's easy explanations of, you know, stuff that he points out in scripture that he doesn't like or whatever. Mm -hmm. But this particular book, he kind of surveys um, what the Bible has to say about why people suffer. And so the classical view that he talks about in scripture is just that um, there, there is a sin and then you suffer because you committed this sin. So that's, you know, David and Bathsheba is the obvious one. And I know you talk about David in your book and you especially, um, Psalm 69 meant a mm -hmm. lot to you, um, reading, you have a chapter about that. And then there's uh, the view of suffering that's redemptive suffering. It's somebody suffering for the cause of a greater good. So that's right. Jesus. Joseph. Or, yeah, Joseph, mm -hmm. exactly. And then there's also suffering, um, which I think he, if I remember right, don't quote me on this, I think he kind of portrays this as like a contradiction in the Bible, but it's really not. It's just the Bible just saying, here's a bunch of reasons why we might suffer, right? Mm -hmm. um, but he comes to, you know, Job and Ecclesiastes, especially when he uh, argues, you know, there's no discernible reason why why someone would suffer. And that's mm -hmm. that, coming back around to Job. That's what it's about. We get that picture at the beginning of Job where Satan and God are having this weird discussion. Mm -hmm. But from Job's perspective, he doesn't know that. Right. He has everything taken away from him. And there's no reason why mm -hmm. he's like to him. It just seems senseless. Right. It's yeah. It's senseless on his part. It's sweet that God allows us to see something bigger that's going yeah. on so that we can perceive perhaps our own suffering has some bigger meaning. But I really think, I mean, I think that is a gift of the book of Job. But to me, the big gift of the book of Job was language for me to use when I distrusted my own words. And Job's language is so raw. You know, it's like he has this moment where he's basically like, leave me alone, God, and maybe I can carve out for myself a little piece before I die and go to Sheol, you know, as like that kind of raw. And I had believed in God a long time, and I didn't want to tell God, leave me alone. But I felt like that. God, leave me alone. And so when Job said it, and I saw it in the scriptures, in God's preserved word for us, and I saw that how God responded to Job despite these words. I just felt like it was a companion to me. It was like someone holding my hand, God holding my hand through scripture, through Job to say, say it, Wendy, say it, say what you're feeling right now. And um, so that's really how the book came about. And that's the sweet gift of scripture to us. And like you said, Zach, it's not the scripture we focus on, but it's the scripture God gave us. And I think he gave it to us for a reason. And when we're at that place, we need to be able to say, God, leave me alone and use a verse of scripture from a man that God said was righteous and know that God wants us to come to him with it, not turn away from him with that feeling. I feel like, um, it was probably a mistake for for the story of Job to be turned into one of the canon, uh, you know, half dozen 
Sunday school stories for little kids. You mm-hmm. know, it's like right up there with Noah's Ark. And I feel like I've I've sat through so many sermons that really minimized the the trauma that Job had specifically by wrapping it up with and God gave him back everything. He got new kids. He got, you know, a new right. family and all this. I'm like, yeah, his whole family still died. And those were people that meant something deep to him. Like, yeah, I don't like hooray. If, if my, if my children died, I wouldn't be okay with it if I got new kids. And you know, in the book <laughs> of Job at the end, People are still coming to him even after his fortunes have been restored uh, um, and um, like in mourning. He's still mourning. Like sure. there's, this, there's this verse, I forget exactly how it's worded. They're still coming to him in lament and mourning and it's not all rejoicing at the end. But that's yeah. what I'm saying. This is my passion is the Bible is a lot better than we think it is. God has given us a lot more in scripture than, you know, your average mega church pastor is going to preach on, on Sundays. A lot of these stories are not, you know, wrap it up with a nice, neat little bow. I mean, it's the messy complexity of life kind of of situations. Yep. Um, Did you, did you ever see the Robert Duvall film, the apostle? No, I didn't. Um, so it's been a long time since I've seen it. I, I have it sitting upstairs on a shelf from the library. I meant to rewatch it. Um, it was a, a small film he wrote and directed uh, the mid nineties. So he, he plays a small town preacher that I, something he commits an act of violence that re, that results in him leaving town and assuming a new identity. He actually kills um, the youth pastor. Cause I think he was having a, adulterous affair with his wife or something right this happens in the first 20 minutes or something of the movie um but it doesn't mean that he has any less of a real faith and real relationship with god he's 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 got some issues (laughs) but there's multiple scenes of him out loud arguing and yelling at god Hmm. and seeing that movie i i tied it back to job and and it made me make i mean obviously he got himself in this situation uh whereas job was a righteous man that didn't didn't deserve any of that to happen but i i learned something from watching that like yeah you you can get mad and 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 ex- and articulate things and prayer doesn't just have to be this solemn I'm on my knees in front of my bed with my hands folded in front of my face and thinking of the most flowery language I can think of um, to recite poems to God every night. Um, But he was, you know, actively working out a lot of difficult feelings and, and frustrations that he had with God and letting God know exactly how he felt. Mm -hmm. And there's something really, really moving about that. It just, I'd never, seen a depiction of anything like that and it and really it sounds like what job was trying to do or what yeah he did <laughs> yeah and if you are someone like me which I, I have a pretty sensitive conscience and i'm not one much to yell at anybody except my kids um 
I really needed the language. I mean, I needed to see a verse. And then the moment I could see a verse with a righteous man who was commended by God, I don't know, this the uh, the dam broke. And I could finally let out the depth of despair I felt, but at the same time feel like I had not been left as an orphan by God to figure this out on my own. Like God was leading me to the very language I needed to wrestle with him. Was it, was it a clean break into a different understanding of what language is acceptable or, or did you find yourself like apologizing to God in your prayers for things you had just said to him? No, I didn't apologize. I just pretty much quoted Job. Job said, leave me alone, God. All right. <laughs> okay, God. That's how I'm feeling right now. Wow. Um, it was a one-to-one ratio. This is scripture. My goodness. <laughs> you also talk about, um, in this book, you talk about evangelical prosperity theology. And I think if you talk to most evangelicals. Um, there are obviously some in the charismatic and Pentecostal wing that may be into prosperity preachers. Um, but I, I think a lot of people, at least from the reformed camp where you and I, we all come from, come out of there, we would say prosperity theology is just a false gospel. It's wrong. But you took a different tact on it where you were talking about if evangelical prosperity theology, if I, Dave, live my life in as righteous of a way as I can. If I try to do the right things, I'm, I'm a good dad and I'm faithful to my wife, Michelle, and I'm, I'm making this checklist of things that I've done right, then I may not say it audibly, but there's something in me that says, I have done all these things, so God owes me an easy life. Right. Um, yeah. And, and what do you have to say about that idea? Have you, you, you said that you had that experience and you kind of see that in the church a little bit. How, how do you see that play out? Yeah, I think we do it a lot in youth groups. And then Mars Hill was such a young church. Mark did it out the wazoo at Mars Hill where, you know, it, the whole thing at Mars Hill was, you know, let me get you before you make all the mistakes. You know, yeah. I'm trying to get you young. Let's get you ready for marriage before and ready for children so you don't make all those mistakes. Right. And the implication was you don't make all those mistakes. And then, you know, you, life will go much better if you do not make all these mistakes and uh, marry the right person. You know, you don't you don't want to date an unbeliever, marry a believer. But they did not communicate that you may still. You're still probably going to have some. It was just such a communication that we're doing all of these things. We're making all these right choices so we can avoid um, these downfalls, these obvious shipwrecks down the road. You're heading toward the rocks. Well, don't head toward the rocks. But you don't understand that there are icebergs under the water regardless. And so then... You know, I spent a lot of time because I was a very earnest Christian. You know, Mark Driscoll in the early years, you know, if he whatever he said, you know, Christian wife was supposed to do. I mean, like I took it seriously. 
I, uh, you know, okay, all right, well, let me pray through that. Let me look at that scripture. Okay, well, then how? I want to, you know, be sure to do this. And then when things don't go, you you really, self, it's it's got to be me. What, how, well, what should I do differently? How should I fix this, you know? And you just can't sustain it. You cannot sustain it if it depends on you that way. And it is a prosperity gospel. It's a more subtle prosperity gospel because we're not necessarily saying it so clearly. But I tell you what, Mark almost did teach a prosperity gospel, you know, the wealth. Um, I mean, I think we can all look back and see it right now. He was telling young men, this is the way to wealth, stable family, you know, happy wife, happy kids, happy life, happy homes. You know, you have a lot of men, I think, I don't know if Zach and your experience overextending themselves in their 20s, buying houses that they couldn't afford to rent out. Uh, You know, they had a they had a um, financial. I bought a house in college while attending Marcel. I I got dumped. And part of my response to that was to reevaluate my life. And I convinced my parents to refinance their house, loan me money for a down payment for a house that I would pay them back with interest when I sold it. And I remember putting the ad on the board at the, the Mars Hill, uh, the, the, what was it? 24th and yeah, the 24th and 80th building in, in, mm-hmm. in Ballard looking for, for roommates to pay my mortgage. And it was like a picture of me in front of the house. And Mark came by and saw it and said, yeah, you know what that is? That's a wife magnet. <laughs> <laughs> of wow. course he said that to you. Yeah. Wow. That is a perfect illustration. <laughs> yep. And you know, buying the house didn't end up destroying me, although good. I, you know, I was making a couple hundred dollars a month and going to college, and I needed the roommates to be always on time or I had to pawn my, my possessions regularly right. selling music equipment and clothes and plasma, <laughs> you know, <laughs> selling all that stuff to make it work and not getting to uh, spend money on enjoying life in my early twenties right. because I was focused on building out this legacy. You know, I had big plans of, becoming some real estate magnate or whatever um, didn't work out. Didn't go that way. Well, you, there you go. Your perfect illustration. I mean, you know, I'm glad it worked out for you that it didn't financially destroy you, but there was kind of was the implication that it was going to work out in a very positive way for you that, that, you know, you invest in this house and you see, you'll see what, Oh, sure. Like I I remember at the men's advance, they had, I remember like Jamie Munson giving, giving a speech essentially about acquiring real estate and, and other tips for, for building wealth and stuff. Um, There was definitely a lot of focus on that. And, you know, that it was, he, he was focused on bringing in young men who were in a position to start earning a whole lot of money in within a few years and thus be tithing a lot of money. Uh, so getting them to, to, um, to be loyal, uh, to the church before the money rolled in for them and then really fill the coffers of of the church. Yeah. 
Yep. The prosperity gospel of conservative evangelicals. It's a re- very real thing. Yep. And more, more subtle than it's uh more uh, flamboyant uh, cousin out there. That's like, God is going to give you a lot of money if you're faithful, you know, a little more, a little more subtle of a message. I, I think I have had a relatively easy life. Um, you know, I've had, I've had grandparents that were beloved that passed away, but I feel like I've been spared a lot of deep grief and pain, you know, so far um, in, in my life, even being 41, uh, probably, you know, a, a recent thing that happened to Michelle and I, well, in the last couple of years is, is between my daughter who's seven and, and my son who's four, we had a miscarriage uh, that was very, very early on in the pregnancy. And that was super, super painful um, because it happens and you go through all those, all those thoughts, or at least I did that uh, before my son was born, are we going to be able to have another kid because we wanted another kid. And so there was a lot of fear and a lot of grief um, walking through that. But, and and that pain was real. And for people who have gone through that, that that is very, very real. And, And Michelle and I know lots of people who have had that tragic, tragic experience. Um, but you know, overall, I still think my life has been pretty easy. And at the beginning of the book, you talk about, you go to church events and everybody seems happy and, and like their lives are together. So I'm wondering, you know, what, what's the best thing that someone in my position that maybe has had an easy go of it these last 40 years, how can we best help someone that's just in a real state of suffering and pain and grief, just from circumstances completely out of their control. I had a friend in her um, early thirties that was kind of similar to that. You know, she and I would talk and she's like, you know what? I haven't really had um, a particularly, I mean, she couldn't really think of a, like a really tragic or hard faith shaking kind of experience, but she was such a good friend to me through mine. And one of the main things she did was just listen and not feel threatened. So sometimes people who haven't maybe had as many um, of those types of experiences, um, some I, I think some folks can, I, because I think I was like this, can feel threatened by someone else's suffering because you don't want it in your life. And so if it, you can almost be fearful that, not that it's going to rub off on you, but it just makes you consider things that you don't want to consider necessarily. But she didn't respond to me at all like that. She would listen and ask clarifying questions and not really give advice, although she had a strong faith and would encourage me in the faith, maybe pray with me. But she would just listen and try to understand and be honest if she didn't understand and I just found the fact that she was willing to show up and walk with me and listen. And if she didn't have advice, that was okay. I didn't need advice. I mean, honestly, if she didn't have advice, that's really great. I don't need advice. <laughs> <laughs> I need someone that's not threatened by the place where my faith is right now. And um, so I think probably one of the best things you can offer is just a listening ear with a faith that's not going to be shaken because someone else's faith is right now. Yeah. Not messages of, Hey, God's got this or oh, yeah, know, kind of cherry. Yeah. Cherry picking. No matter what happens, God's still on the throne. Yeah. 
people, people <laughs> can be just... really well-meaning, but it, it just, it comes across as dismissive. And I mean, I think some people use those phrases just to get out of the conversation. That's like right. Yes. Couple, they just don't want to deal with it. Now I will sometimes, if I have a friend really struggling after we've taught for a while, um, and I would have some people do this with me, they would pray in faith for me when I couldn't for myself and hearing their faith, not as a directive to me, listen, Wendy, God's got this, but praying it for me, you know, God right now, I know Wendy is struggling. I really believe you've got her right now. I ask that you would help her feel your arms, uh, help her see your glory, whatever. That was different. That had a really different, um, I had a different response to that as opposed to someone telling me to muster up faith. Right. Yeah. It's, it's hard to, to be there for somebody when it's something that you haven't had personal experience with. I, I remember hearing Stephen Colbert talk about when he, lost his older brothers and his dad in a, in a mm-hmm. plane crash when he was young and the, the bond that created with him and his mom as they, they had to be there for each other. Um, and it was a conversation with Anderson Cooper who had yeah. lost his brother to suicide, I believe. And his mother, wasn't it? Or was it uh, his brother? I think his, his brother. Yeah. Cause his, his, brother. Mo- his mother's uh, glory of Vanderbilt. Um, but, uh, yeah, he he said he was asking Colbert, like he said, I, I've heard you talk about this as something it, that you're thankful for it. And how is that possible that you could be thankful for that? And Colbert said, well, you know, if, if I could if I could change anything in my life, it would be to undo that. But having gone through that gave me a superpower of empathy, of I have the ability to understand others going through deep loss and grief and meet them where they are. And I know that before my dad died a couple of years ago, I hadn't experienced any deep loss and and grief uh, of a direct, like, like Mm -hmm. person in my life. I'd had the ambiguous loss of loss of community and all that with, you know, leaving the, the the extended Mars Hill family and all that after that being like all of my twenties. Um, but before, before personally experiencing that, I, 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 I know that I was probably a very little help to other people going through it. Yeah, me too. And, and I, I do feel like I, I got a, a little, a little bit of that superpower that Colbert has that, that I can, I have the words a little bit more now, the language for, for understanding other folks that are experiencing that. Right. And I feel like I can be useful and it feels good to know that I've exercised those empathy muscles right. uh, against my will <laughs> <laughs> um, that I'm, I'm a little bit more ready to be there for others than I yeah. was beforehand. Well, Wendy, uh, before we let you go, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Uh, do you want to give us um, a little bit about your book that's coming out uh, early next year in January, I Forgive You? Um, yeah. Maybe just why forgiveness is important for people to think about right now? Yeah, I, um, I'm burdened about this. I think that there's a lot of discussion right now um, around reconciliation and 
It's uh, fraught with problems because we're not precise with our words. So we don't really distinguish between uh, forgiveness and reconciliation. And so we have a lot of, I think, abuse survivors that are resistant to the phrasing forgiveness or reconciliation. And also where I'm living, race relations are a big issue. And there's a lot of negative reactions between both whites and blacks around here between depending on which which word you're emphasizing repair mm, boy a lot of folks don't like the word repair they don't mind reconcile they like forgiveness and reconciliation but they don't really like repair then others you know want to talk about repair but forgiveness is you know it's a harder word and they don't they don't want the pressure to forgive or reconcile and um, I just really think it's valuable for us to think about the words separately and how they work together toward reconciliation, but that each of them are different. Confession is different than forgiveness, um, repentance and confession, you know, recognizing you're wrong, uh, repairing is different than confession. And all of these are different than forgiveness and they're different than reconciliation. And um, until we're precise with our wording, I think we harm each other sometimes in these discussions and we get angry and frustrated and we talk past each other because we're not, we're using the same words to mean different things. So I hope that the discussion, I found a lot of help from Desmond Tutu's The Book of Forgiving, Um, really good book. He and I disagree on some things theologically, but he had some really good words that I thought were very scriptural in how he approached the whole idea of reconciliation. And he's very adamant on recognizing the wrong. You got to name accurately what happened. And um, the difference in forgiveness that just allows you to release the person that harmed you versus forgiveness that is toward the path of reconciliation. Those are really two very different things, but both of them are forgiveness. But right. where, where that forgiveness ends, you know, really depends on some other things in that process. So we look at all of that and um, use the life of Joseph to kind of help us navigate that. Nice. Yeah. And just uh, what I'm hearing is, I can forgive somebody who's wronged me as far as not wanting to be mired in bitterness or having it steal the way I'm living my life. I can forgive, but I can still call for change, repentance, and justice of people who, those same people who have done me wrong, or anybody can. And there can be distinctions between those things. Yeah, and justice is different than revenge. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, precise, precision with our words matters. You can release someone um, from their hold over your mind, you know, and you can hope for their repentance. You hope that they will change, that they will repent and also pursue justice that keeps them from harming someone else the way they harmed you. Those are all reasonable things to hold together. Yeah, my my sister-in-law posted a, a- a quote from from Mark Driscoll on Instagram like a month or two ago. Uh, wise words from him. Lots of hashtags. Re- she was really fired up about whatever he was saying, and my wife politely noted something about how he's not a good guy and he shouldn't be a pastor. And he 
fled the restoration process and uh, wasn't really approved to start a new church and all that. And, you know, she got her comment deleted and a, and a private message saying, you need to forgive this man. He's, he's a good Christian and you, you know, you need to get over it and, and fix your heart on this issue. And, and I could say, yeah, I could release his hold over my life. I mean, I continue to let that, let those things rattle around in my head and I'm working through that stuff because it was a big part of my life for a long time. And, but he's still out there hurting people. Yeah. He's actively hurting other people <laughs> right now. Yeah. So that matters. And it's, it's hard to think of, it's hard to separate right now talks about for, forgiveness from the, the, all the talk about cancel culture and mm-hmm. a lot of talk about how the evils of cancel culture, when folks that are proponents of, uh, you know, even if they don't want to use the word cancel culture, they would say, this is consequence culture. Like for too long, people have been hurting others with no consequences because they're in a position of power and, and are not able to, or not, not forced to deal with these things directly. Mm-hmm. And, and we can forgive them, but to weaponize forgiveness as the church so often does and says, you just need to forgive them. And that's that, you know, Mark's a pastor, Mark's baptizing people, people are getting saved there. So mm-hmm. forgive him. No big deal. Forget about it. Well, no, there, there, there needs, he hasn't had real consequences. He had to move. You know, mm-hmm. he lost Mars Hill, but he just set up a new operation. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he didn't have real consequences and he hasn't ever repented. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think of um, Paul's words. Um, I think it's in second Thessalonians or second Timothy, where he says the Lord's bond servant um, needs to um, be gentle toward his opponent, uh, considering that they are captive by Satan. And I really feel like what my obligation to Mark is to remember his humanity, um, to uh, push off um, my tendency, and I have to revisit it. I have to revisit it even today. Push off my tendency to dehumanize him or to think of him as a monster, Um, but but also to say, honestly, some of his acts have been really horrible. So he's um, not a monster, but he has done some pretty monstrous things toward other people. Um, and distinguish between that and hope for his repentance. So I am not going to write him off, though I'm tempted to, because that's what cancel culture wants to do is like write someone off. Um, and so, but I, what I want to do is to hope for his repentance and not let go of that and hope, but that, that doesn't mean we don't hold him accountable. So repentance for Mark doesn't mean he still is in a pastorate, mm-hmm. you know, um, I don't, I don't think he has any business in a pastorate. I just think. Nor do I. Yeah. He doesn't I, meet the qualifications of a pastor. Number one. I, I, I absolutely would hope for his repentance. Um, but if I had to choose his repentance or people's continued safety from his abuse, I'm going to go with safety from abuse. And, you know, I think that is a really important facet. You know, if someone is, you know, the families are not forgiving Dylan Roof. I think a lot about the families of um, 
the Charleston Nine, the yeah. um, at yeah. uh, Emmanuel AME, and not forgiving Dylan Roof as he's pulling the trigger, right? You know, the guy was arrested. He's in court. You know, he's been charged. Okay, so we put an end to his reign of terror. And then we can start having this. Because the, the first is a crisis, right? And so still with Mark, we're kind of still in crisis where he's still harming. He's still doing his path of harm across America, honestly. Yeah. Um, and so there's a very real desire just to see him stop harming new people, stop causing new people to doubt God, because you've you've run them over with your bus. Your bus leaves dead bodies behind. Stop the bus. Yeah. But then also to hang on to some belief in his humanity and hope for his repentance. Um, I think that's a lot of what we are called to, um, even to love this neighbor as ourselves. And I think a lot, of, you know, like if I were doing this. What would draw me to repentance? I don't know anymore because his heart's pretty hard. Uh, it's hard, but I try to I try to discipline myself to think that way and ask those types of questions because I don't. What Desmond Tutu talks about is that um, we are they they're still our jailers. They're still occupying this place in our head, and um, forgiveness makes us basically our own liberators. It releases them from the hole that they have over our own brain. But we're in a weird situation because Mark is still in the middle of his path of harm, harming yeah. new people left and right the same way he, and we we see the devastation of what he left in Seattle. We, we have these friends, you've experienced it yourself, Zach. So it, it, it definitely creates a complicated perspective. It is like, yeah, I'd, it'd be better for my mental health if I could just, eternal sunshine those nine years away uh but i i i feel a responsibility to warn people that are in his line of fire that are in the way of the bus and for those that aren't aware uh, the the metaphor here back at mars hill mark mark once said that there's a pile of dead bodies behind the mars hill bus and by god's grace it'll be a mountain by the time we're done and I, I, in reading your article from today, if, if we could call it back to that, I, I thought about that because farming doesn't often lead to mass casualty. Right. And the warrior mentality is absolutely something that, that's going to say something like that, that, yep, you know, be, be it with the sword, be it with the bus, I am, I am destroying people in God's name. Uh, I have, I am killing mountains of people by God's grace. And uh, hopefully I get to keep doing that for the rest of my life. And so I'm here saying I got hit by the bus, but I'm still around. Please get out of the way of the bus (laughs) and somebody stop this bus. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like my ministry is coming back after him and calling out the shrapnel and saying, no, look, here's some seeds of scripture. God's better than this. 
and let's tend these tender fields and tender shoots and may the sun shine on them and may we harvest fruit despite the fact that the bus just ran through the field. If we could really quick, with the farming metaphor, I remember you writing a really interesting piece with a new understanding about the root of bitterness. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. As I recall, it was like, I'd always thought of it being this way, you know, don't let the root of bitterness grow. Everybody talking about this root of bitterness, but there was some yeah, it's the, insight the, that you have. The offender is the root of bitterness. The, the whole problem, we think the root of bitterness is like the uh, the feelings of the one who's been experienced the bitter root. But Mark is the bitter root. We're we're the ones who've had to experience his bitterness. Um, and um, so the better perspective is you you root out the bitter root and because it's defiling many. Right. So, you know, someone lectures you on not being bitter at Mark, you're like, but he's, he's the root, you know, we're just tasting what he has put out. And so he's the one defiling many. Um, and if you're a warrior, you got a sword, you, you cut the root, but it keeps on growing. If you're a farmer, you know, you pull the root out. You get you it go. out of your soil. There don't, you don't go. Don't let it ruin your crops, right? Right. Or are <laughs> you spray cancer causing a <laughs> roundup on it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, Wendy, it was so great to meet you. And thank you so much for your time and, and being on our show. Um, if people want to get in contact with you, where's the best place they can uh, follow you around on social media or whatever? Yeah, I'm at, at Wendy also on Twitter and um, theologyforwomen.org on the web. Don't post as much there, but um, I got you can contact me there if you're interested. So thank you guys for having me. This is a good discussion. Yeah, thank fantastic. You. Thank you, and con congrats on the new book. Thanks. Um, did, did you write that during quarantine, or has this been... Yeah? All yeah. right. You're, you're, you're one of the creative folks that... You, that uh, it's making everybody else look around and be like, ah, why didn't I uh, write my, what, what was the Shakespeare? What, you know, why didn't I write Richard the third or whatever it was? <laughs> Twelfth night. You know? Um, well, yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks so much. Zach and I would like to thank Wendy Alsup for being on the veterans of culture war podcast. We appreciated her insight, wisdom, and personal experience in talking about a variety of topics, including suffering and a very practical approach to the problem of evil as a committed Christian. I have mentioned before my beloved philosophy prof professor, Dr. Skip Forbes at Grace College, and how he would talk about various topics, and one of his big ones was the problem of evil, and for people who are committed Christians, how to approach this difficult topic. He used to say that this is the nastiest problem that Christians would have to deal with, and I think that he was right, uh, because a part of his wrestling with the problem in philosophy class was based on the philosopher, Scottish philosopher, David Hume, where he would talk about the problem of evil, quote, is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able, but not willing? 
then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? Unquote. So if God is all-powerful, why do evil things happen? Not just moral evil, but hurricanes, disasters, famines. And if these things happen, does it mean that God is not all-powerful and cannot stop it? And we as Christians believe in a good God who is righteous and holy, but yet we live in this world where these evil things happen. So basically, I'm, I'm glad the three of us on the podcast completely solved that issue today. All, all kidding aside, uh, the problem of evil reminds me of a film that I love and is probably one of my favorites of all time, The Tree of Life by Terrence Malick. And it deals with a family who loses one of their sons to a tragic accident. And it deals with their wrestling with this loss and the grief and pain from losing this family member. Roger Ebert reviewed The Tree of Life, published a review on June 1st, 2011, The Blink of a Life Enclosed by Time and Space. And he published this a few years before he passed away himself, and I think it this film had a profound impact on him. Terrence Malick takes the problem of evil and almost flips it on its head. And he suggests that we have these small lives, maybe 80 years, maybe 90 if we're lucky, and we're living sandwiched between this unimaginable time and space that has gone on before us. And that mere existence is a miracle and a grace. This does not totally solve the problem of evil because people still suffer immense pain while they exist for this short amount of time, but it is an interesting perspective on it. Ebert quotes at the end of his review, and it all happens in the, this blink of a lifetime surrounded by the realms of unimaginable time and space. Unquote. This has been another episode of Veterans of Culture Wars. Thank you so much for listening to us. Thanks to Wendy for being on the show. Please be sure to pick up her book, Companions in Suffering, wherever fine books are sold. You can reach out and contact us on Twitter at Dave J. Lester. My co-host, Zach, is at Muzak, M-U-Z-A-C-H. And we have a show pod at VCW Pod. So you can contact us on Twitter. If you would like to um, see more of Zach's art and music that he's done, you can go to muzak.bandcamp.com. If you'd like to read more of my writings, ramblings, movie reviews, and thoughts about whatever, you can go to dangeroushope.wordpress.com. Music and logo for the show done by Zach. Thank you so much, and we will be back in your feeds soon.